Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. All right, everybody. Hey, welcome to Room for Growth. We are excited today. We have Rand Fishkin, who is a bit of a name in the space. When our team heard that he was coming on the podcast, everybody was like, oh, man, that guy, he's a legend in the SEO space. And so we're really excited to share our conversation with him. We're coming back. We've been on the road. I think our last episode, we talked about being in Summit. And then I'm just back from Shop Talk which is really cool. It's like all the brands that you kind of love are all there, you know, the consumer brands, retail brands. And so it's a lot of that game where you're like badge watching as people walk by. And we met Viore, which is a brand I'm a big fan of. So everything from kind of upstart brands to the biggest and largest in the world. But Billy, I had this crazy experience. Yeah, this is, I was so jealous when you texted me this. I know. I figured I, it was kind of like a humble brag because I knew you loved this brand. They come up all the time. There was this crazy environment at Shop Talk where there were 3,000 tables. So they were officiating, there's some number like officiating over 20,000 meetings. And you walk in and you have your table. And I met with the head of digital experience, in store digital experience from Sephora. So I text you and let, let you know. And you start talking about this incredible experience that they have that's a, a skin tone. Yeah, matcher. Yeah. I'm obviously not the target demo, so I'm struggling here, but it's a great experience to find the best makeup for you based on your skin tone. You you mentioned they're like the first to it. Totally. Yeah. It's one of my favorite personalization use cases in market today because it is truly helping people buy product. What it does is you go into any Sephora, they use this little tool that immediately figures out what your skin color is. They add that to your digital profile. So when you're in store, it helps the salesperson in the store help you find the shade of concealer or foundation, these things that have to be a perfect skin match so that you don't look like a fool putting your makeup on. But that's hard to do. Like if you are a person who does not wear makeup, I challenge you walk into a Sephora walk up to any one of the counters where all you're seeing is like skin colored creams. Heaven forbid you are a person whose pigment is a lot darker. They may not even have an option for you that matches, but just see if you can eyeball which one of those shades is your skin tone. It's nearly impossible. So then when you're shopping online, it's even harder because then you're not even looking at like the shade in real life. You're just looking at like a little square of color and the name of it online. So when you do this shade matcher in Sephora, it allows you to personalize your entire shopping experience so that you can find in any brand, any kind of makeup, what's going to be the best shade for you. Makes it so fast to try new products. I think it's just so innovative. I'm sure it's driven sales for them because it takes this huge friction point out of a complicated decision. So you met her. You met the. I pr- showed her the text. I was like, my my friend Billy, my colleague Billy. She look what she texted me. And uh, funny enough, she was like, "That's my tool. I, that was my big project." And so she like it was a, a cool moment for her because she was getting some like field compliments, you know, and certainly one for you. You better bet I said, hey, we should have you come on the podcast and talk about, you know, building this super hyper personalized experience in store and, and everything. So what a good experience out in out in Vegas learning from some of the top brands. And I wrote up a quick LinkedIn post, but these brands, they are everybody's pushing. I heard like maybe a couple comments about economic 
whatever situation. It was more people are focused on like, what's next? We've got to get get our customer data in order. We need to, you know, I built this tool. Now I got to focus on doing this. And so there was not a whole lot of slowing down. So my warning out there is if if you're kind of waffling or waiting in this budgets are tight, oh no, what are we going to do mode? There's a bunch of brands who are also dealing with constrained budgets moving and getting creative in how they're going to do it. So I would be careful kind of slowing down too much. Yeah. Just a little precursor for our interview with Rand today. We spent a lot of time talking about what he's doing today, which is still super cutting edge and very cool. His take on the state of marketing and where it's going, I think is really brilliant and super insightful. But we have a co-host with us today. I don't know what you call when you have Billy and Billy. We're co-hosts. Well, it's a trio. Yeah, we're a trio of hosts. So we invited Kurt to join us today. He leads our SEO practice at Willow Tree. So Kurt, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Kurt Peterson. I lead the SEO practice at Willow Tree, helping build digital products. So we're thinking about SEO at the very foundation of it all and making sure that we get it right rather than it being a bolt-on solution at the end. That's uh, kind of our stick. And Kurt, you followed Rand for a long time, right? Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, he's a legend. He When I first even started thinking about SEO, he was the person to watch. And he did these wonderful whiteboard Fridays where he would just get on there and grab some dry erase markers and just start going to town and just creating this elaborate story. And you can tell from the interview because he's super animated. He doesn't even need a whiteboard or the dry erase markers anymore to be able to kind of get his point across. So yeah, super excited to be able to all the listeners to hear this. Awesome. Well, with that, let's jump right in. everybody. Welcome to Room for Growth. Today, we have a guest who, for a huge audience of marketers, probably needs no intro, but I'm going to give you an intro anyway. So we have Rand Fishkin here today. He is a digital marketing expert and entrepreneur who has made very significant contributions to SEO and content marketing industries. He is sort of a household name in these spaces. He's really well known as the co-founder and CEO today of SparkToro, which is a powerful audience intelligence platform that helps marketers identify and understand their target audience. But before launching SparkToro, Rand co-founded Moz, which is one of the most influential SEO software companies in the world. And he served as CEO there for over a decade. Um, Rand is also a prolific blogger and public speaker. He's really talented at taking complex digital marketing concepts, simplifying them, making them really accessible to a broad audience. And then with SparkToro, Rand has shifted his focus from traditional SEO tactics into helping marketers better understand their target audiences by providing audience insights into their behavior, into their preferences, their demographics, and allowing marketers to create more effective marketing campaigns and content strategies. So all of those things are themes that are pretty constant here on Room for Growth. They're the topics we love most, which is how do we make great user experiences? How do we make them personalized? They are the buzziest of concepts in the world. Every brand, it seems like right now, wants to be achieving, Rand, what you have created entire businesses around doing. And the reality is they remain really challenging experiences to build. So welcome to the show. We are super excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. All right, Rand. So we're going to get into it. And with that storied background that Billy mentioned, you know, you've, you've done a lot across the space. And I'm curious with your most recent, we're just going to jump right to what you've been working on most recently. Curious, what inspired you to, to create an audience research tool? What led you down that path? Yeah. During my many years at Moz, I think 
that like many marketers, I was a hammer and every problem to me was a nail. I thought all marketing problems, all sales problems, all customer traction problems could be fixed by ranking higher in Google search for the keywords that you wanted to rank for. That was, in retrospect, a foolish belief. <laughs> and I, I think that I now have a much, much better appreciation for why people invest in branded content that has nothing to do with ranking search engines, why they invest in campaigns of all kinds. But in my late years at Moz, um, just before I left, I was helping a lot of startups. My wife and I invested in a few startups and a few accelerators and helping some of these early stage companies try and find their audiences, bring them to their websites, turn them into customers, which is a problem almost every business has. And SEO was not doing it because their customers were not searching for the words and phrases that would lead them to become customers. You can think about this in a million different ways. But let's imagine, let's take an example of what I, in our pre-session, referred to as the hate crime against Italy that is the <laughs> Olive Garden. So the Olive Garden, they might rank number one for endless breadsticks. I don't know if they do, but not a lot of people are searching for endless breadsticks. People know that the Olive Garden has them. It's obviously a product that some people who don't care about their colon health are interested in. <laughs> but you will not get more Olive Garden customers by ranking number one for that. What you will do is if you can find the audiences who are interested in, let's say, topics around, I want to go out for fast casual. I fit a certain demographic. I fit a certain psychographic. Maybe I follow certain sources of influence. Maybe maybe the Olive Garden discovers that, hey, USA Today readers have a big overlap with us, but New York Times readers, not so much. Like That's not our crowd. And so by identifying those groups of people and then being present in the places where they are present, the Olive Garden can really make a difference in driving more customers. I was helping tiny little companies, right? So small startups that were targeting like professional coaches and teachers who were looking for simple presentation software. I was on the board of this company, Haiku Deck in Seattle. And we could not, for the life of us, find a keyword that would drive good traffic to the website. We just couldn't. And so SEO was this hammer and there were just no nails to hit with it. And that is what inspired SparkToro because I realized that, my God, if I could go search for people whose bio includes the word professional coach or life coach, or they actually served a lot of religious leaders, right? Pastors and rabbis and, and those sorts of folks. Amazing. Like if I can search by those things and then I can see, oh, all the rabbis in the country, you know, read the Brandeis University newsletter. I'm stereotyping my people, but they probably do. And you could then go and say, I want to advertise in front of this specific group by reaching this audience. You don't have to use Google or Facebook's programmatic advertising or YouTube's, or you can, and you can specifically tell them, hey, I want to be in front of this group of people. That is transformative. It's incredibly powerful. And it, it was always so weird to me. When SparkToro came out, I couldn't believe we didn't have a competitor. Surely someone must be doing this, but I still haven't found them. So that helps me because I want to immediately get into my favorite topic selfishly here. And my favorite topic is audience segmentation because it is the hardest, easy thing 
to do. Everybody understands what audience segmentation is. You take people who interact with your brand, who have similar values, similar ways of purchasing from you, similar interests potentially. You could maybe get into demographics even. You put them together in a group and you send them the same message or you treat them the same way. And hopefully when you do that, drive more value. And while so simple on the surface, the best practices around this, the frameworks for how to do it, the ways to do it right are very difficult and very complicated. So Rand, talk to me a little bit about how do you approach audience segmentation and how does SparkToro help? Yeah. So I talked to a bunch of smart like agencies and consultants before we started SparkToro and asked them how they did this. Like, how do you figure out which groups of people are the right ones for your to become your customers? And how am I going to see what my competitors' customers look like and break those into the cohorts and message to them differently in the right places where they're present with the right message at the right time, which is that's basically all of marketing. And the best way to do it, the absolute best way to do it is you should go get all of your customers' and potential customers' home addresses. And then you want to learn lockpicking and security system disablement and you want to break into their homes and steal their phone, right? Steal their phone and then get the unlock code for the phone. And then you want to look at everything that they read, watch, follow all the YouTube channels they subscribe to, all the email newsletters that they get, all the people that they follow on Twitter and LinkedIn and what subreddits they're subscribed to. This, of course, as you're probably thinking, this is incredibly illegal, super unethical, and no one should do it. But you know what's maddening? What's wild is... A huge percentage of Americans, of people all over the world, put this information publicly on their profiles. If you go visit my LinkedIn profile, it'll show you all the groups I'm part of. It'll show you all the behaviors I have, everything I post about, all the links I send, all the people I'm connected to, all the companies I follow. If you go to my Twitter profile, you'll see the 120 people that I follow on Twitter. And that'll tell you a ton about where to reach people like me and my interests. You can see my bio data. You can see when I was born. You all of this data is public. And for a huge percent of the public, this is true. Google crawls it. You can go crawl it too. You can go visit every one of the profiles. I met some poor agency interns whose whole job was just to go visit the profiles of every one of their customers, right? The agency would take their, whatever, the Olive Garden's like list, customer list. They'd take that email group. They'd send it to Clearbit or Full Contact, one of these identity resolution services, right? And using that, they would then have social profiles for all these emails. And then they'd make some poor intern or they'd hopefully hire an engineer, right, to go crawl all those profiles, download all that data, and then cross-reference it into pivot tables that you can turn into useful, actionable data that says things like, oh, well, your demographics, you thought your demographics were this, but they're actually this other thing. Oh, you thought that you could reach people best through these publications and these media sources, but no, look, they pay attention to these other ones. You thought your audience wasn't on TikTok, but look, we can prove that it is. All these kinds of things are possible. Not illegal, not unethical. It's publicly crawlable data. It's anyone who is private, who want, who doesn't want their data out there, doesn't have to. So yeah, Billy, I, I mean, my whole thing was just, let's do this for everyone. Why make every single marketing agency and consultant and CMO and team have to build this themselves? You should be able to go to a tool and type in, my audience uses these words in their bio, life coaches or pastors or real estate agent. And then you should be able to see, oh, real estate agents pay attention to these publications. They follow these YouTube channels. They listen to these podcasts. That is the kind of segmentation I love to be able to do. And I want to do it in seconds, not 
surveys and interviews and home break-ins and police arrest reports. It's just it's too much work. Well, but really what you're doing is creating a research tool. It doesn't create necessarily the perfect strategy for audience segmentation, how you reach them, what sorts of invasive, non-invasive tactics you use to reach people. It's really saying, if you have some basic level of understanding of who you're trying to reach, let us help you. Yes. Let us help you take a whole bunch of steps forward and how you might reach them. But you still have to apply some brain power (laughs) to that thought. Absolutely. So I don't know if you remember this scene. There was a great scene in the old television series, Mad Men, which was like about the golden age of advertising, right? Don Draper's character, John Hamm, you know, is the actor who plays him. And I can't remember which client comes in, you know, it's like a big airline or maybe it was a tobacco firm. They, they come into the offices of the ad agency and they ask about like, hey, where should we spread this message? They come up with some cool creative. Of course they do, because that was every episode. And then they're talking about where should they spread this? And they have a big binder. I don't know if you remember this scene. There's like a big binder that they open up. And then it's sort of in a fraction of a second, they look up, oh, well, the the audience that you want to reach, they read, I want to say they said like 25% of them get Life Magazine delivered every week. Where's that binder? Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. I want that binder. Obviously, today, you know, it would be I don't know, miles long in terms of pages because the sources of influence are so dramatically larger than they were in 1965. But that's what I'm looking for. Well, and I asked this question a little self-serving, a little tongue-in-cheek because a trend that we certainly see across every industry right now, every big brand, is they are willing to invest in AI. But typically how they're doing that is companies are investing in AI because what they want to do is they want to replace brain power of human beings around the strategy for how you have communication be effective. And they want to try to outsource that to technology versus what you're really talking about right now, which is how do we take massive amounts of data and make sense of it and categorize it and make it easy to absorb and to learn from and to use? That's a really different case for AI. Now, ChatGPT has really come in and is clouding this whole world of like what is possible. So we're at such an interesting turning point. But talk to me a little bit about how you see AI being integrated into SparkToro, if you do it all. And if so, yeah, give us a bit of the details here. Okay, so... Let's see. First off, I, I'm going to say we do not use AI at all in SparkToro. We don't even use any machine learning. So SparkToro, extremely straightforward, simple product, essentially just this percent of people who match the criteria you searched for, subscribe to or read or watch or listen to or have linked to or engage with the publication or attribute or demographic that is shown in the tool. That's it. It's just raw percent. The hardest thing we do is crawl the internet. The the easiest thing we do is just divide. (laughs) It's just pure division. But you bring up this really interesting point, Billy, which is there's so much budget for the new hot thing that people are worried is going to disrupt them rather than the, I don't want to say tried and true, but the most logical, strategically sound, tactically worthwhile investments. I think this is because there's a lot of fear that the internet over the last 25 years disrupted so many businesses, right? Amazon came in and, you know, first created an e-commerce marketplace and then started taking away market share. Google came in and basically erased all of the margins from every publisher. And the fear is that, well, what if AI does that to me? Do I need to be on top of that? I, I have a lot of empathy for that fear. I think that fear 
drives a ton of this behavior. I also don't think it's entirely founded. I think when you look forward 15 years in the future, AI is going to change a lot of the way we do certain bits of work, but I do not believe it is going to fundamentally disrupt commerce the way, say, the emergence of the internet did, or even the emergence of the internet on mobile devices. I think it's going to be a little bit more like how voice-to-text technology has worked or what we're doing now, right? Which is essentially the, the massive adoption of remote work and video and those kinds of things. Where I do see AI... I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of complaints about how people ask ChatGPT certain questions and the response that they think they're getting is an answer. But it is not, right? What ChatGPT does from a text perspective is to predict with high accuracy the most common next word that would be present in a corpus of text that it's been trained on. I like to call it spicy autocomplete. If you want to use spicy autocomplete for something, there's lots of use case applications for it, but Coming up with a marketing strategy, that's not one. Yeah, totally. So that's a great segue. I think being able to kind of better understand the sort of so spicy autocomplete that you talk about, what do you see in store for the broader minefields that might be out there for content marketers? Yeah. So I saw an interesting piece. I'm trying to remember who published it. I think it was republished on Forbes, but I can't remember the original publisher, but they they sort of did a breakdown of the industries and jobs that will be most affected, most adversely affected by the rise of ChatGPT and BARD and other sophisticated large language model AIs. And marketing, SEO, content marketing, that was all at the very bottom of the list. You know, the ones at the top were things like around customer service, around reception desk, around help processes, even executive assistants and admins, that kind of stuff where essentially the same instruction that you might give to a an admin, like, hey, I want you to book me the best flight you can find to London. I want to leave this day, return this day, make sure that the seat next to me is empty. You know, whatever like the instruction that you give around that is, fantastic use case for ChatGPT. Also really good use case, ChatGPT, I want you to go through my code and find where the error is. I'm getting a runtime error in my code. What's causing that? Phenomenal use case can make programmers so much more efficient. I've seen lots and lots of engineers talk about how much repetitive, annoying tasks can be freed up from their day. But marketing, it's tough. You know, I see people asking ChatGPT things like, which keywords should I rank for to get new customers? And it, it can't give you a good answer to that. It will give you a confident answer, but it is not a correct answer because it's not looking up, oh, what are the popular keywords that appear in Google? It can't access the web. It can't access Google's search data. It's not accessing Bing's search data either. It is just predicting the words it thinks are most likely to come next based on the corpus of text it's been trained on. So use case-wise, I think you have to be I think you should be required to get a deep education in terms of what a large language model is and how it operates before you try and apply that data anywhere. And I see the opposite happening, where people try out ChatGPT because they heard it was hot. And then hopefully, 5% of them are learning what a large language model does. I think that's such a good sort of spicy take. I'm kind of with you, Rand. I think 
AI isn't as scary as some people are making it sound. I think there will certainly be winners and losers in it and people have to make transitions, but I would equate it more to like when McDonald's put kiosks in their stores, they actually had to hire more people because suddenly they had more people using these kiosks and they needed more people to help run them. So jobs actually grew. It might be more similar to sort of now that we're making autonomous trucks, there will be truckers out of the job, but we still need people who understand how to haul large degrees of goods across the country, helping understand how to like use that infrastructure appropriately. But in the marketing space, I actually have a totally different take, which is I think that as the proliferation of content, I was going to describe it poor, poorly, but as the proliferation of content becomes easier, a whole bunch of marketers are going to mess up because they're suddenly going to be able to have all of the content that they want and could ever need. And they're going to over message. They're going to send too many things. They're not going to apply thought and discernment to it. It's not going to be creative. It's not going to be unique potentially. And those who choose to use these tools in ways that is relatively elementary and doesn't have that thought behind it are going to lose out of our brands who are still thinking smart and thinking clear. I was really thinking, Billy, the other day about writing a blog post called Chat GPT Content is Now the Floor. It really is the you must do better than this because everyone will produce infinite quantities of this kind of content all across the the web and in every other material. So you have to be better. And better can mean a lot of things. Better can be more compelling, more emotional, more human, more authentic. It could be more visual. It could mean tighter and smaller, right? It could mean chunked into... ChatGPT is not great at being concise. You can tell it to be more concise and it'll keep getting more and more concise. But Initially, a lot of people are producing a ton of content because they think they're, they need more content. I think that's a great insight. So Rant, I'd love to know one of the things I followed you and the production of the Whiteboard Fridays for years and love some of the content that you produced. I think it was really insightful talking about zero click search. And obviously with this conversation around AI and everything that we've been discussing here, what do you see in the future for in store for people that how they search, but also ultimately what that's going to mean for content publishers and the zero-click search game. This is an area where I do think AI is generally bad news for marketers who have relied on getting lots of search traffic for generic terms, right? Terms where people are searching out broad information and answers. You want to know who won the Oscar for everything, everywhere, all at once? Man, Bard and ChatGPT, Google and Bing are going to do a phenomenal job of providing that answer without asking you to click. And those search engines have learned over time that users really love that information without a click. And they come back and search more when that happens. The same thing is true. So zero-click searches is one challenge, but the other one is zero-click content, which my colleague Amanda Natividad from SparkToro coined. She had this basically insight that all the social networks over the last five years have moved from come here, get information, and then click on a link and go from Facebook to the Washington Post or from Twitter to Engadget.com. Or you know, you promote this podcast on LinkedIn and people click on it and go from LinkedIn to the podcast website. And that is dying. Those clicks are going away just the same as the clicks from Google. Not necessarily the total number is lower, but the percent has been declining. And so what you have to hope is that more and more people are going to keep using these, but we're sort of running out of new people to use the internet. We're just about at at what is expected to be the global peak of population. I think that's maybe another 10 years away. 
And then, you know, by 2100, we're supposed to have 70% of the population that we have today, right? Because essentially birth rates are declining globally and all this kind of stuff. And people getting online, you're just running out of those people. So all these platforms, Google, Facebook, right? Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, Reddit, you name it, they are all trying to get people to spend more time on their site so that they can get more data about them and show them better advertising and better content. I think that the future for marketers that we should be thinking about is how do I create the same value for my company and my customers and potential customers on the platforms, on the search engine, in the results, as opposed to simply trying to drive them from the platform to my site. That's the future. The future is going to be zero-click content. It's going to be zero-click searches. It's going to be native content and search native content. You're making YouTube videos. You're not getting people from YouTube to click to your website. You're making content that Google will rank and people will experience that content almost exclusively at Google, not come to your website and learn more. Does that suck for a lot of people? Yes. Is it definitely how the last five years have gone and how the next five years are going to go, uh, barring some sort of antitrust action? Absolutely. Tough to be a display advertiser in the future. That's for sure. Oh, my God. Brutal. But great to be a brand who has inherent trust in a space. Man, I'm telling you, the endless breadsticks, they're going to crush it. <laughs> <laughs> Rand, you're kind of, you know, as excited as I am and as we are about that AI and chat GPT and what it, what it will do, you're kind of bringing up a theme that we talk a lot about. And Adam Greco from Amplitude said in a few episodes previously, you know, so many brands have not even run a marathon, but they're talking about running an Ironman all the time. And it's like, get the foundational elements right. And maybe AI will help brands accelerate getting to that, that Ironman. We'll see. But I'm curious with SparkToro and less about search and more about activating personalization. Is, are brands able to leverage SparkToro to enrich that profile and really enhance the personalization that they're sending in emails, SMS, and really create a more personalized experience there? I want to say, yes, that is possible. There's ways to use SparkToro to do it. But Billy, I have this... Um, other Billy will recognize this in my, in my West Coastness, which is I really hate to be self-promotional and like tell people to come to my thing and do it. What I want to say is I think that personalization can be very valuable. I think what we talked about earlier, segmentation is incredibly valuable. If you can say, oh, these users of mine have these characteristics. And if we message them in these ways, in these places where we know they pay attention, we're going to get better results than if we send a broad message to all of our potential customers and customers. What you can do with audience research, so you know, SparkToro is one, but there are other tools that help with the same kinds of things that SparkToro does. I really like SimilarWeb. In fact, we're exploring buying some data from them because we like what they do so much. So one of the things I would do on SimilarWeb is, for example, Billy, you can take your website or the website of a competitor and you can plug it into SimilarWeb for free. They offer this for free. They will show you other websites that are visited by people who visited that site. I think it's like the first five or 10 are free. They'll also show you the channels that they get traffic from. So it'll say like, oh, well, they get 15% of their traffic from email and 22% from Google and 2% from Bing and you know all this kind of stuff. That data can be used to reverse engineer a lot of this segmentation that you're talking about. But ChatGPT can't do it. I hate to say that most folks are going to really struggle with this. You have to be a very smart, thoughtful, empathetic marketer 
who has a lot of experience dividing up audiences in the right kinds of ways and then figuring out, where, is this an audience that I'm dividing for advertising? Is it for content? Is it for what I show them on the website? Am I going to try and basically third-party cookies are going away, first-party cookies are getting less reliable. So you'll have to use other kinds of session data to do this. But for example, we segment based on if you're a returning customer and you have an agency account, we'll show you at SparkToro things that are right for marketing agencies as opposed to an individual brand, right? Or a singular user. And that's the same kind of segmentation that every company can do. So if Olive Garden sees that I'm visiting from Seattle, Washington, and they might know, for example, gosh, you know, there's not an Olive Garden within 10 miles of this person's location. And so we're going to show them like the generic brand homepage. But if you're visiting from Missoula, Montana, and there's one like two miles away, hey, we're going to show you a page that is Missoula centric. You can change it later, right? The geography can change. Like IKEA does a great job with this, right? They like show you exactly the IKEA closest to you. They tell you what they can do shipping wise for you, all this kind of stuff. Amazon as well. I think that type of segmentation, that type of smart content, yes, figure it out, find ways to do it. If SparkToro can help, we'd love to, but try these other tools too. You just nailed segmentation. Rand, you just personalized this podcast for me in the most effective way possible. <laughs> for those people who don't know, and Rand, I'm guessing you had to have known this, but I grew up in Missoula, Montana. I had no idea. Uh. So I spent the first 21 years of my life in this charming little town that very few people... And she loves Olive Garden, so... <laughs> it's actually a terrible town. Go to Big Sky. Big Sky is great. Missoula is awful. Don't go to Missoula. Go to Big Sky, Montana. Big Sky, Montana. I'm putting that on my list. Thank you. Good tip. I'm just kidding. That's mostly for the tourists out there. Stay in Big Sky. Missoula, we're going to keep that fishing water pure. This is the thing. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And you published a, a book about running a startup and being a founder. And one of the things, even though I'm not a founder and I'm not running a startup, I always find the insights from doing so, so interesting and applicable to, to the the things that I do every day. And I'm just curious how your thoughts on how you build a strong culture and what are some of the warning signs when you think you're building a strong culture, but it's maybe not working or there's there's a change that needs to happen. Just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So for folks who don't know, uh, just a little bit of background, I had a very challenging and emotional and painful journey at Moz with lots of high highs, right? But lots of low lows as well. And Lost and Founder is not a I'm so great and you can be too. I hate those books. I think that they suffer from survivorship bias. I think that they are incredibly arrogant and that I don't think they really help people. I think they're designed to make the author look great and get on stages and start their speaking career. I hate that. So Lost and Founder is not that. It's <laughs> I will tell you my favorite review of the book, which was from a venture capitalist who read it and emailed me and said, you will never be able to raise money again after publishing this. <laughs> and I was like, that, that is all my hopes and dreams just in one little email. I love this so much. I can't believe how successful this book has been for what I was wanting to accomplish. Okay. My biggest thing for building a great culture is you as a founder, a founding team, the small group of people who, who are early stage in a business, if you can all agree on exactly what you want to build in terms of a business. It doesn't have to be the product strategy. That can change over time. The features of the product, that'll change over time. 
But what do we want to be long term? Who are we? What do we believe in that is more valuable to us than money? Making money. That answer could be nothing, in which case, great, you should go start up a finance NFT company. But if you have answers to that question of, I would not be willing to trade this value, I would not be willing to trade this sort of time or this kind of commitment for the business to be more financially successful, you should codify those things and then you should live up to those. And you should live up to them throughout the process of the the culture that you build. Culture is not we made these values, we put them on the website, we put them on the wall, we talk about them. It is, that's how we screen for new employees. That's how we interview. That's how we train people, how we onboard them. That's how we review people. We don't just say, hey, you know, Kurt, let's say you and I work together and you're reviewing me. You don't just say, hey, Rand, your performance was quite high. You shipped a lot of code or you published a lot of blog posts. They got us a lot of traffic, whatever it is. You would say, are you living up to the values that we said were important to us That is just as important as, did you get your work done? Did you do well with the work? Are you helping other people at this company live up to the values? What those values are should be, you should not make them ones that you think are going to look good from the outside. I see a ton of founders do this. I think it's a terrible idea, right? They pick values like um, transparency when they don't really believe in transparency. And they're not very transparent people. Don't pick that value if it's not for you. Don't pick something for marketing purposes. That's essentially asking everyone who joins the team to think that the values are one thing and then have to learn that the secret values underneath are another thing. Terrible recipe for culture. Great recipe for culture is you actually took the time to figure out what you are and who you are and then state that correctly and make it clear to everyone who joins the team and grade them on it. And that's how you get there. SparkToro is really weird. Moz was a 200-person company. We had you know, a couple offices. We acquired a bunch of companies. We took a lot of venture capital funding, grew to a very large size. SparkToro is three people. It's myself, Amanda, and Casey. Just the three of us. We all work remote. We meet in person once every month or two. We do not have scheduled deadlines for almost anything. We just kind of get our work done as as we're comfortable and capable. I'm moving this week, as I mentioned. So I am basically doing no customer support emails. Like Amanda, in case you're taking everything while I'm kind of offline for a week. And we have a very beautiful, lovely system. It works for us. I don't think it would work for everyone. But it's the kind of company we wanted to build. And I think that's what makes it functional. And I have a question that I ask all of our guests. I'm going to ask you that question. But before, I'm going to ask you another question that is different. So for anyone who didn't get to hear the preamble before this podcast kicked off, Rand and I started talking about sort of just East Coast, West Coast differences. So I said I grew up in Missoula, Montana. I lived all over the West Coast. And now I'm happily an East Coaster where a big difference in my mind is that on the East Coast, there's lots of chain restaurants and people happily go to chain restaurants. On the West Coast, there's lots of more like unique dining experiences that really value kind of the experience and the craft of the food going in. So Rand, what is your favorite chain restaurant and what is the best dining experience you've ever had? And those can be separate. You do not have to tell me your best dining experience (laughs) at a chain restaurant, though you can. (laughs) I hope they're the same. Okay. All right. Okay. Actually, I think I will tell you, I don't know if this is my favorite chain restaurant, but I will tell you the best dining experience I ever had at a chain restaurant, which is Geraldine, my, my wife grew up, her family didn't didn't have a lot of money. I mean, mine, mine didn't either, but their sort of special occasion restaurant once every few years was Red Lobster. 
and Geraldine absolutely loves Cheddar Bay Biscuits. She's crazy for all-you-can-eat shrimp. Like, (laughs) hey, Red Lobster, right? This is amazing. I have, obviously, I'm from the West Coast. You can probably tell from uh, my ridiculous glasses and uh, and this Japanese cardigan that I'm wearing that I probably (laughs) don't go to a lot of chain restaurants. And so uh, for her birthday, we were in Ashland, Oregon, uh, which is like this tiny little town along I-5, but um, really cute place to visit. And we were staying there and I noticed that there's like a Red Lobster 20 minute drive away. For her birthday, I said, hey, I'm, I'm taking you out for a special birthday dinner. We get on I-5, we're driving north. She's like, where, where are we going? We're, we're not going. I don't understand where this is. And I turn off at the Rogue Valley Mall, which is almost entirely deserted now really sad, but there's a red lobster. And I pulled it in the parking lot and she just started sobbing with happiness. Like, you know, we'd never been like, I'd never been to one. We hadn't ever been to one together. We've been together for 22 years this December. So we pull into the red lobster and man, service was great. The Cheddar Bay biscuits were like a six out of 10, but I enjoyed them. Um, they were very surprised when I ordered lobster. I, seems weird. I thought lobster was the thing to order. The name of the restaurant is Red Lobster. I don't know. I think it's like going to the Olive Garden and ordering olives. They just look at you weird. Like they're not into it. So that was my my best dining experience at a chain restaurant. And for this reason, Red Lobster is always going to hold a special place in my heart. Great story. See, I love it. That was a great story. East Coasters everywhere just triumphed and feel joy. <laughs> All right. Last one for you. We um, love to talk about brands who do a truly great job of driving loyalty among their customers and create an experience that's worth coming back for. So Rand, which brands are you truly loyal to and why? There's this company in Vermont called Darn Tough Socks. Do you know them? I've heard that they're great socks. Yes. Darn Tough. Friends. Oh my God. The socks are insanely good. Here's the thing. They do virtually no marketing because they don't have to. And they have this, the weirdest thing in the world for socks, which is a lifetime guarantee. Your sock gets a tear in it. Wow. They don't care if you do it. You could, you could cut your sock with a scissor. You send it back to them. They'll send you a fresh pair. That's impressive. Wow. It's just incredible. The quality is off the charts. I hate wearing other socks now. I have like a whole drawer full of other socks. <laughs> and when I run out of the darn tough socks and we haven't done laundry for a little while, I'm like, ah, man, I'm out of my good socks. I have to wear the crappy old socks like now. <laughs> and they're not crappy. They're fine. They, they look nice. You know, I like the happy socks. I like the colorful socks. But darn tough is just at a whole other level of product quality. And for this reason, they just have incredible loyalty. And I think they also get a ludicrous amount of word of mouth, which is, you know, a marketer, some marketers, digital marketers hate word of mouth because it's impossible to measure. You cannot show your CMO or your client or your boss or your team, hey, we drove a bunch of traffic with word of mouth. It all looks like, you know, Google brand search. It all looks like direct and type in. You can't attribute it. You don't know what, you know, what came from infuriating. But man, I mean, I'm telling you. Darn tough. Darn tough. They have a phenomenal recipe. I aspire. I aspire for SparkToro to one day be the darn tough of marketing software. Are you wearing them now in your move? (laughs) No, I ran out of them. (laughs) It's one of those days. My feet are cold and sad and I don't like (laughs) anything. It's probably why I'm feeling a little under the weather is because I ran out of my darn tough socks. That's probably it. 
Hey, well, Rand, we are so grateful you're here today. I feel like we didn't even scratch the surface of all of the things I wanted to talk about with you from life to culture to leadership to marketing generally. So we are going to have to invite you back, hopefully at a time where you're not under the weather, because if this is you on a bad day, you on a good day is going to be running laps around, around the rest of us. But thank you to our listeners for tuning in and we will see you next week on Room for Growth. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. 